You know, before we get to Bible study this morning, I just think it would be appropriate to be able to share in ministering to those who've been affected with what took place in, in Boston this past week, to just uh, take a moment. We're here worshiping and enjoying the Lord's presence, and there are uh, people whose hearts are raw with grief over the loss of some loved ones, and certainly many people just recovering and trying to figure out uh, how to relive their life in a completely different way because of some pretty incredible wounds that have been inflicted. So before we get into our study this morning, why don't we just quietly bow our heads and right where you're at, just quietly before the Lord, just pray and intercede as the Lord will put it upon your heart, how to just pray for those folks, and then I'll close out in a minute. Father, we do bring before you the families, especially those who have been victimized with, Lord, the loss of a loved one, Lord, whether a child or a mother or a father. We just, Lord, whatever it may have been, we just pray that your spirit would minister to them. Lord, in the grief and the, no doubt, anger and confusion of why such a thing would happen to their loved one. We pray that your spirit would just meet them where they're at, Lord, in a way that no human being can say things to them that would somehow soften the pain and ease the grief. Lord, we pray for those who have lost limbs, for those who are recovering in pain, no doubt, Lord, as well, just shocked and confused regarding what the rest of their life will be as they recover from such things and live differently than they've ever had to live before. We pray that you'd give them grace, that you turn their hearts towards you if they don't know you, that they'd find you as their helper and as their good shepherd to lead them through this difficulty and that you would draw people close, that somehow, Lord, you would use this to glorify yourself in a way that only you can and so often do, Lord, taking what's intended for evil and turning it around for the good. We believe you can do that. And Father, we pray that you would use these events, Lord, satanic and horrible as they are in their inspiration, and that, Lord, you would open the eyes of our nation in a greater way to our deep need for God, that, Lord, you would protect us from the threats and things that continue to seem to come against us as a nation and, and Lord that you would forgive us for any of the things that we are doing Lord that make us become more vulnerable because we've turned away from you Lord have mercy on us and help us as a nation and as a people and we pray even for ourselves that this morning you would meet us in a fresh and a new way and cause our hearts to be more submitted to you and more fruitful for your service in this nation where you allow us to live, Lord, and we commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you do have your Bibles, why don't we turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, as we continue our study in Luke together. 
pick up where we left off last week. Luke 22, and this morning we're going to pick it up there in verse 35, and we'll travel down as far as verse 51. And if you do need a Bible, just hold your hand up. There's a few in the aisle there if you need a copy of the Scripture so you can follow along with us in our study of God's Word this morning. And if you're turned there with me, would you stand as well with me together out of respect for the Word of God as we read our text for Bible study? Luke 22, beginning there in verse 35. It tells us that Jesus said to them, When I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said, Nothing. And he said to them, But now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you, that this which is written must still be accomplished in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. And coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And Father, we humbly bow our hearts, our minds, our soul and spirit before you and ask now that you'd please help us to be able to receive just the full benefit of an impact of the Word of God speaking to us this morning personally. Lord, would you prepare our hearts? Would you give us an ear to hear what your Spirit would say to this part of your church through this portion of Scripture? Lord, you know exactly what we're asking and what we mean and we need. And we ask you to bless your Word and that your Holy Spirit's ministry would now speak personally and powerfully to each one of us. And we ask these things in Jesus' wonderful name. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think it is true to say that probably one of the very real tests of any person is how they respond under pressure. And in our passage in front of us, if you 
haven't noticed, it's pretty obvious that the circumstantial pressure with Jesus and his disciples at this point has kind of increased. And as things move forward, it honestly is only going to intensify as they're now literally within hours before the Lord's arrest and his suffering and his crucifixion. And as we see the pressure increasing and then intensifying, you notice that the disciples are buckling and and stumbling and struggling under the pressure when quite to the opposite extreme, Jesus is completely victorious under pressure. In fact, if you were to give Jesus a, a grade, he scores off the charts in relation to excellence and how he handles pressure victoriously. And quite honestly, I think that's a good reason why letting Jesus Christ rule and reign inside your heart and mind is extremely wise because we face seasons of pressure and challenges in our own lives as well. Now, if you notice in verse 35, again, Jesus in this dialogue with his disciples as we've been watching, he tells them, it says in verse 35, When I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything, he asked them. And they said, nothing, Lord, nothing at all. And he said, but now, that is at this point, he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, he says, sell a garment and buy one. For I say to you, that which is written must still be accomplished in me, Isaiah 53, And he was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. So it says, they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, as our passage unfolds, Jesus is beginning to inform the disciples that a new hour or a new season, if you would, was coming regarding God's purposes. And some things among them were going to begin to change. Now, you notice he starts out there in verse 35 by basically asking the disciples to recall a prior time in their ministry when Jesus had sent them out in an earlier season. In fact, if you want to jot your notes there, Luke chapter 10 in your Bible, it gives the record of exactly probably what Jesus is referring to. In the earlier years of Jesus' ministry, Luke chapter 10 records for us in Luke's gospel how Jesus sent out the disciples in teams and he sent them to various cities around the area and he sent them out telling them look i'm sending you out like lambs among wolves but he says when you go out he told them when they went out on this sort of missions and outreach ministry endeavor in teams to various cities to minister he said look even though it is going to involve some personal risk You're going to have to, in a sense, incur some risk personally in each one of your lives. But he said, however, when he told him in Luke 10 to go out, I don't want you to take a knapsack. In other words, I don't take additional supplies. I don't want you to take a money bag. I don't want you to bring your own, you know, vast amounts of of money with you to kind of sustain yourself and provide for yourself. I don't want you to bring yourself a weapon to kind of protect yourself in the midst of danger. Instead, he was calling them to step out in personal risk and completely to trust his dependability, to believe that he would be reliable to provide for them, to protect them, to take care of them in every way through circumstantial ways that he would work. And he wanted the disciples to trust him and to watch his dependability and to see how reliable he would be to supply whatever they needed and to keep them safe 
despite the personal risk that would be involved. So Jesus is saying to them there in verse 35, recalling back to a prior time, he says, think about it. When I sent you out, he says, with nothing to sustain yourself, did you lack anything? How did it go? Did you lack anything? And they answered, as what was true, nothing, Lord. Truth be told, Lord, you were completely faithful. We did not lack anything. You supplied for us. You worked in ways to make sure that we were provided for and taken care of. Lord, you supplied safety. You kept us safe. It was risky, but nothing harmful or hurtful ended up happening. You ended up keeping us completely safe. Lord, we did not lack anything, nothing at all. And the disciples had learned a lesson of faith. They had learned a lesson of how to rely upon the dependability of the Lord and to see him work in ways for them. They had experienced firsthand his dependability. You know, it's often been said before, where the Lord guides, the Lord provides. And that's a motto that I believe we can live by. It's something that was taught to many of us as pastors very early on, especially in the Calvary Chapel movement, that look, where the Lord guides, the Lord provides. It's one of the ways, is the Lord guiding? Well, then he should be providing. And if he's not, then maybe he's not guiding. But when the Lord indeed guides and directs, no matter what it involves, he will provide. He will sustain. He, he will make sure that ample resources, whether it's you know, financial, circumstantial, protection, safety, he supplies whatever is necessary to accomplish whatever he guides and leads us to do. I believe it was Hudson Taylor, if my memory serves me right, said years ago, God's work done God's way will never lack God's provision. God's work done God's way will never lack God's provision. And the disciples had learned that firsthand. And he prompts their memories to testify of that reliability. He says, when I sent you out last time, you didn't have anything to sustain yourself. Did you lack anything? Nothing, Lord. Nothing at all. And you know, I think for each one of us in all of our lives, if we reflect back at different times in our life, our own experiences of following the Lord in different ways that he directs us in our lives, if we're honest, we'd all have to say the same thing. And the Lord said, did you, did you ever really lack any? Nothing, Lord. You always came through. You made sure we had what we needed. You, you, you were faithful. You're dependable. You took care of us in every way. And when the Lord leads us and directs us, we can know, look, he hasn't changed. Jesus is the same. And if the Lord leads you and directs you to do something, at times, I'm not saying be presumptuous and foolish. I think we should take measured steps of faith and we need to know that we know that we know the Lord is leading. But listen, when the Lord is leading, he will make sure he does whatever is necessary to sustain and to provide and to make things work out on our behalf if he is the one directing us in those things. So Jesus says, on that prior occasion, when I sent you out at that time, in that season, did you lack anything? I didn't give you any. I told you, don't purposely don't take anything to sustain yourself. I'll work in ways in which you will be taken care of. I'll put favor in the hearts of other people. And he did that. He protected them. And he says, that was how I sent you at that time. I purposely told you not to take anything, not to sustain yourself in any way, but rely upon me 100%. Verse 36, notice, he says, but now. And you should circle those two words, but now, indicating a contrast, 
something different. But now, Jesus says, at this hour, he who has a money bag, he should take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you, that which is written must still be accomplished in me. He was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. So Jesus here informs the disciples, what? That things are now going to be changing. That there's going to be a transition that takes place and therefore they needed to to change their approach accordingly. See, in the earlier years of Jesus' ministry, the opposition really had not intensified as it has to this point yet. Jesus was fairly popular with the crowds. The religious leaders' opposition and hatred and animosity towards him was not quite at the peak level where it is now. But at this point, at the end of Jesus' ministry, hatred for him has reached its peak and he is destined to be arrested and to be mistreated and to suffer and ultimately be put to death because of where things have gone circumstantially now at the end of his ministry. Jesus here refers to how Isaiah 53 predicted regarding his life that he would be numbered together, it says here, with the transgressors. That is, Isaiah 53 predicted regarding Jesus' life that in the end of his life, he would actually be pursued and then ultimately arrested and treated just like a criminal and a transgressor in the society. And Jesus knew that this had to be taken, uh, something uh, regarding that had to be taken place in his life. And he says, what is written regarding me must be accomplished. I have to be taken in this way, that this is a fulfillment of the word of God. These things will take place. They have an end. And see, the end of Jesus' ministry, here's the point, the end of his ministry was going to be different than the earlier years of his ministry. And he wanted the disciples to be wise and to be aware that in these days they were in now, in the days ahead, it was going to be very dangerous and difficult to associate with Jesus. It was going to be a lot more threatening. And it was going to be a lot harder as persecution would intensify. And he wanted the disciples to use wisdom to be prepared for this upcoming change. That they would recognize that they could not use the same MO or method of operation for their lives or for their ministry that they were using in a prior season. Because the season was changing. Times were different and the current times now called for some changes and adjustments. That's why in verse 36 he says, look, I know how things were before and that was my leading. But now he says, whoever has a money bag should take it and, and whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his garment and, and, and buy one. At this current season, Jesus wants them to recognize that they were to do, if you notice, the exact opposite as they had done in prior years. That the way things were earlier, they actually were to shift gears in the days ahead. Things were going to now be different than in the times past. And he wanted the disciples to realize this and now to exercise personal stewardship and to take responsibility. He's saying that's the way it was then. But now, he says, it would be the right thing in this season to practically sustain yourself, to provide for yourself, to do things that are necessary to make sure that you have your own financial resources to sustain yourself. And now, he says, would be an appropriate time, given the hour that's at hand, to have some responsible means to protect yourself should that become necessary. He says, he who doesn't have a sword, 
or a weapon, the idea is, should sell his garment and, and buy one. The disciples are much like you and I. All they heard was the sword comment. Look at verse 38. They, they, they say, look, Lord, here are two swords. We already have two swords. You know, we're, we're ahead of the ball game here. And notice Jesus seeing their enthusiasm for weapons here. He says to them, look, that, that's enough. In other words, okay, boys, let's, let's, let's not go to extremes as you seem to have a tendency doing. Let's not get out of balance here. And he kind of just, you notice, kind of in a curt way, sort of decisively puts down their weapons enthusiasm and says, look, that, that's sufficient, okay? I'm, this isn't about me trying to tell you to create an armed militia so we can just violently oppress all the evil in the world. And he kind of just puts an end to their enthusiasm. He was primarily concerned with a recognizing the reality that things were going to change there was going to be a transition that they were entering into. And I think Jesus here shows us, by way of application, a very important thing. Something that we need to remember for our lives. That personal life and ministry and working for the Lord is something that happens in seasons. Our personal lives, they, they happen in seasons. And ministry and working for the Lord, it happens in seasons with changes and transitions. And it is so important that we don't try and regulate things to always be the way they once were. That we realize that, hey, things happen seasonally and we can't regulate what's happening in our personal life. This is the way we've always done it. Or this is the way it's always been. Or this is the way it was last year. Well, maybe that was the way it was last year. But we're to remain current in this. God, by design, look at nature. He's created seasons. Things happen in seasons. And it is so important for us that we're not trying to wear the wool sweater when it's winter. You're not supposed to be running around in a t-shirt and flip-flops when it's the middle of, of, of winter. You know, we, we need to realize that you know, in summer we don't wear the wool sweater. In winter we don't wear the t-shirt and flip-flops. No, we, we respond according to the season that we're in. And God has a way of moving our life in seasons. Whether it's our personal life or whether it's the ministry and the works of the Lord, the important thing is this. Listen, the important thing is to stay in step with the season that we're in and listen to the Lord's instruction as to how to respond to each season that he transitions us through because the Lord may work in different ways now than he did in the past. The Lord may provide for you in different ways now than maybe he used to. And if he wants to change the way that he provides, then we need to be open to those kind of things. And, and recognize, like Ecclesiastes 3 tells us, that he has specific purposes for each season that we enter into and that we at times go through for a time. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 tells us there is a time and a season for every purpose under heaven. The important thing is when Jesus says, hey, that's like the way it was before, but now. Pay attention to the but now so that you make sure that you're in tune with what the Lord is doing and you respond to it submissively in your life. Well, look at verse 39. It tells us Jesus then coming out that is probably from the upper room time. John 13 to 16 gives us the full account of a lot of the conversation that happened. Coming out now, it says he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed. And his disciples also followed him. 
So Jesus now transitions from the upper room area where he was having a lengthy conversation with his disciples and he seems to go to a location that he enjoyed spending time at. It tells us here in Luke's gospel, he went out to the Mount of Olives that he was accustomed to going to. Seems it was a particular spot that Jesus went to kind of by regular habit. He probably went to this location for times of solitude to get away from the crowds, to have some downtime and some quiet time. It was probably a place where he went to frequently that he just kind of really enjoyed sitting there and spending time in prayer and having quiet hours alone with the Father in solitude. In fact, John 18 verse 1 and 2 fill in some detail it says he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron where there was a garden and he and his disciples entered and Judas who betrayed him also knew the place for it says this for Jesus often met there with his disciples so part of the reason Jesus goes there as well is because he knows Judas is about to betray him and he's submitting completely to the will of God and allowing himself to be vulnerable even to Judas's actual betrayal but again John fills in a detail. He tells us that this was a garden area in the Mount of Olives. There's another insight. And it's somewhere where he often met together with his disciples. We know as well from Mark 14.32 that the place was called Gethsemane, which literally translated means olive press. So this area, this garden-like area, Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, was probably an area where there was a grove of olive trees and there probably was an olive press right there in that area and Jesus found a liking to being in this area and interesting when you consider what an olive press is an olive press basically is a process whereby with incredible strong pressure the the olives are crushed under strong pressure to extract the precious oil from the flesh of the olive and no doubt it's a beautiful picture of exactly, especially Jesus being here, exactly what he was kind of undergoing in this hour. This crushing experience of realizing the weight of the sin of the world that he was about to bear on our behalf because of his love for us and his desire to save us. Well, verse 40 tells us that when they came to the place there at the garden, he said to the disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed and i love this picture here jesus who is their leader upon arriving to the garden notice what he does he initiates a prayer meeting i think this is an incredible thing here jesus shows up to this garden area with the disciples and our Lord initiates with the disciples a prayer meeting. Now, I say that to say this. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I can't help but to think that Jesus Christ, who is supposed to be the head of the church and who is alive today, even as he was in that day, by his spirit, that when he is the head of the church and his spirit is given freedom to move among us, that Jesus is no doubt initiating the exact same things. As our leader and as our Lord and the one who's the head, that Jesus is, is by his spirit initiating prayer time. I, I want you to pray. Let's seek the Father. And in the same way, he's initiating that. He commands the disciples here. Notice, first of all, in verse 40, saying to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, what's prayer? Prayer, we say, is talking to God. Yeah, prayer is basically spending time with God. It's spending time in fellowship with God. And Jesus here knew, keep in mind, Jesus knew the challenging things that were right over the horizon and were really coming upon them within a matter of a few hours. And because he knew the challenges ahead, as he knows the challenges ahead for your life as well, the challenge that you're going to face a few hours from now, the pressure that you'll be under two days from now or two weeks from now or two months from now, because he knows what's ahead, Jesus here initiates and commands them to spend time seeking God. Why? So that they might not be overcome by the temptation to sin when the pressures and the challenges that they were going to face pressed down upon them and arose in their lives. Let me just say this. There are many, many good reasons to pray. Would you agree with that? There are lots of beneficial reasons to pray. But I can't think probably of a more essential purpose and a greater benefit of prayer than to avoid entering into temptation to sin when we find ourselves confronted with challenges and tempting situations where we could respond wrongly outside of the will of God and say something that we shouldn't say or act in a way that we shouldn't act or succumb to some habit that the Lord has given us victory over and then we, in a moment of temptation, we you know, slink back into it. And, and temptation, it confronts us. You ever notice, I, I never get an advance notice when temptation's coming. It'd be wonderful if that happened. You know, I never get like the you know, RSVP if interested. You know, it never happens to me. Instead, I just kind of get the surprise and it's right there and then I find myself either standing in the Lord's victory and the power of His grace and spirit or stumbling just like we all do on occasion and having regret and frustration afterwards because I succumbed to temptation when it came upon me. And Jesus knew, apparently, how spending time in prayer would safeguard His disciples from succumbing to the weaknesses of their flesh when temptation came against them. The reason is because spending time with God, which is what prayer is, spending time with God keeps us in tune with the Holy Spirit. Spending time with God in prayer keeps us dependent upon the Spirit of God. As I spend time alone with the Lord in prayer, as we assemble to pray together in prayer meetings, listen, the direct result of that is we're more in tune with the Spirit of God. And we're more dependent upon God's Spirit. And as a result, people say we're prayed up. Well, we understand what we mean by that. I mean, it's almost like we're trying to say because we've been with God, we're prepared. We're ready. We're more in touch with the things of the Spirit of God instead of our fleshly, carnal nature. And we tend to respond better. So Jesus says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. By you praying, you, he says, will safeguard yourself against temptation. Now, in the same way, we all know it's quite clear how not spending time in prayer usually leaves us what? Weak and vulnerable and susceptible in the ways we often respond to temptation to sin. And often we end up making moral failure or spiritual mistakes because many times we weren't spending time in prayer. 
We weren't having a devotional life and spending time with the Lord on a daily basis. We, we, we didn't take the opportunity to spend time in prayer and seek the Lord together with His people. And because of that, we leave ourselves vulnerable and susceptible. And I guarantee if I were to ask this morning, perhaps like the disciples, you have experienced this reality both ways. That when you were spending time with God and in prayer, it was a safeguard and you stood strong and you actually had victory over temptation in your life. And I guarantee if you were honest like I would be that there are times where we, we didn't spend time in prayer the way that we should have or we could have and we found ourselves weak and vulnerable and acting in the flesh and doing things you know, and, and conducting ourselves in a way that was just harmful to us and hurtful to our testimony as a result of what the disciples would experience here as well. Well, look at verse 41. It tells us that Jesus, after he instructed them to pray, he initiates the prayer time. And then it says, he withdraws, goes about a stone's throw away, and he, it says, knelt down and prayed. Now, like many times before the disciples had watched this, Jesus withdrew from them. And he seemed to have a habit of this. Luke indicates this more than anybody else, which is interesting because Luke focuses on the humanity of Jesus. Jesus as being fully man, even though he is at the same time with fully God. And Luke indicates to us more often than any of the other Gospels how Jesus was just part of his nature. He would just kind of disappear and he just would seem to withdraw from the disciples to go and spend time in prayer. So once again, Jesus does the same. He goes to be alone and seek the Father. And how beautiful to see Jesus, who is the perfect man. It says here in verse 41, the perfect man, it says, he knelt down and prayed. You know, K.P. Yohannan always used to say, we worship Jesus as God and we follow Jesus as man. We worship him as God, but we follow him as man because he's the perfect man. And here you have the perfect man. It says, he knelt down and he prayed. And this time, however, as he's praying, the disciples, it tells us in the other gospel accounts, sense that Jesus is struggling under the weight of something. In fact, it tells us uh, in the other Gospels that he appeared distressed, that something was overwhelming him at this hour. And what was it? Well, we know exactly what it was. It's almost as if we're treading on holy ground to try and understand it. But Jesus, being fully God, but yet fully human, is confronting head-on now, because the hour has come, the incredible spiritual reality and the human suffering that he is about to endure as he becomes the sin offering to make atonement for the sins of the world. It tells us in 2 Corinthians regarding Jesus that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Now, I don't know if we could ever fully comprehend exactly all of what that meant and what Jesus experienced to be the Son of God and yet simultaneously man and to come. And it says, He who knew no sin, Jesus, the pure, innocent Son of God, eternal with the Father in heavens forever, coming down to this earth, the only sinless man to ever walk the planet. And then somehow, at some point, Jesus steps in to our shoes, and Jesus ends up bearing all of the wrath of God, the guilt and everything that you and I deserve is placed upon him as a sin offering, and how the Father, it seems for a moment, turns his face away, and there's a breach, somehow, mysterious, to our understanding, a breach in the fellowship between the Father and the Son, where he cries out, my God, my God, 
Why hast thou forsaken me as he's becoming the sin offering for the world? Not to mention all of the human suffering and the pain and the torment that Jesus underwent as a result of suffering for our sins. And Jesus understanding the reality of these things, the weight and the stressfulness of those things he's about to experience are having an effect upon him to where, again, Mark 14 says he became troubled and deeply distressed to where the disciples could see it outwardly. And now Jesus, in this situation, it says he humbly falls to his knees and he begins to plead fervently with his Father in heaven, seeking to work through this unbelievable experience in his humanity Verse 42, the Holy Spirit even gives us a portion of his prayer. It says that Jesus knelt down and prayed, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus, under the incredible weight, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, physically, of what he is about to go through, experiencing what the Bible calls making eternal redemption, enduring what he's about to experience, working through this excruciating process in prayer, working through it on his knees with the Father in heaven, asking, Father, if it is possible, let this hour, let this cup pass from me, he says. And when Jesus speaks of the cup here, please understand, it's a reference to the wrath of God against the sin of humanity. Multiple scriptures indicate that's what the cup is a reference to. Psalm 75 and Isaiah 51. The book of Revelation indicates that. Jeremiah 25. That this cup Jesus speaks of is a reference to the holy and righteous anger of God in all his justice against all the wicked, defiled sin of humanity. I want you to imagine if you could, though it's probably not quite completely possible imagine all of the sins of every single human being ever born throughout all of human history all concentrated and mingled into one cup all the vileness and the perversion every selfish thing that we've ever done every evil thing that we've ever thought every wrong thing we've ever said and then multiply that for every single human being born throughout the entire time of human history every perverse thing every murder every theft every terrorist act the sins of every single person and the wicked and vile all of that mingled that sinfulness and violence into one cup and then mix into that same cup in its potency with sin, mix into that same cup the just, righteous, holy, proper wrath of God against all of that sin that has to be punished, that must be punished. This is the cup that Jesus realizes he's about to swallow personally to make eternal redemption for the sins of all of the world. And as Jesus is facing this in his humanity, he's wrestling in prayer through confronting the reality of what he is about to go through. And he turns on his knees to the Father saying, Father, all things are possible with you. And Father, you have no limitations. And before I undergo this horrific experience, spiritually, 
physically, in every way, before I undergo all of that as your beloved son, if there is any other way that humanity can be saved, if there's any other way that sin can be forgiven, Father, if possible, if there were any other method or process to have sin forgiven and let people be saved besides me personally ingesting the cup of the wrath of God against the sins of humanity, then, Father, let this hour pass. Let it pass. Take this cup away from me because of how dreadful the experience was. And he says, understanding the reality, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And of course, the silence from the Father in heaven indicate clearly, son, there is no other way. There's no other way. And so Jesus and his love for you and I follows through with a submissive and obedient spirit. Philippians 2.8 says that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus willingly, as the sinless Son of God, surrenders himself and did what was absolutely necessary to pay for the sins of the world and to allow you and I to be forgiven and have access into heaven and eternal life. Now, witnessing that interaction between Jesus and his Father, can I just say this in very directness? How utterly foolish and presumptuous of us as human beings to think there is any other way that we could be right with God other than through the finished work of Jesus Christ accomplished for us on our behalf. I love what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be attained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Paul's saying... I will never set aside the reality of the amazing grace of God because he said if being right with God could be attained through the law, through efforts, and I do a little of this and I weigh out my goods and bads, and, 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 I, and he says, then Christ died for nothing. Why would he have endured all that? It would have been in vain, and that was not in vain. It was not in vain. It was because it was necessary. There was no other way that it could take place. And Jesus shows us here that the truest victories in life, hear me, the truest victories in life come through personal submission and willing surrender. That's how the truest victories in life come. Through personal submission and willing surrender. Not by fighting for our own preferences. That's not how victory comes. Fighting for our own preferences and things. Victory comes, true as victory, by humbly embracing God's plan. And see, I think it's only as we really begin to recognize and appreciate what Jesus did for us and the cost it took and the surrender he made and all those kind of things, that as we look at these things, we can then in gratitude find the willingness when we need to to pray during our stressful hour when we're having our kind of personal Gethsemane, if you would, when we find ourselves facing something where it's difficult to obey and it's a stressful time and it's a hard hour and, and we find ourselves facing something very difficult and having to decide whether we're going to do what's right and honoring God in the situation or do what we feel like or what we prefer or what would seem best to our mind. Only as we see what Jesus has done and as we yield in appreciation to him, then does the Spirit of Christ in us 
who lives in us as Christians, give us the grace to pray and to, to honestly reconcile with God through prayer in difficulty. Father, all things are possible with you. And God, I'm asking if there's any way you can take this away. If there's, if there's any way that it's possible that it doesn't happen, happen this way or that it could go, if it's possible. I don't think there's anything wrong with asking. But at the same place, to come to that place in submission where we say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, ultimately, I don't want what I want, whatever you want. I want what you want. I want to be submissive to that. And boy, that's a place of incredible maturity when we can come to that place. You know, there have been a few occasions in my life where I've had to come to that, that crisis and you can't overcome that crisis except on your knees in some ways in prayer before the Lord where you're wrestling with the reality as I know I do with mine with the selfishness of my human spirit because by nature I want my preference I want my way and at times sometimes God's ways are they're not my ways and as a representative of Jesus and a follower of Jesus I need to be able to come before the Lord and say Lord not my will yours be done Yours be done. I surrender it right here in prayer, Lord. I just turn it over to you. I want your plan and your purpose. And I'll tell you, that's really where the truest victories come in the Christian life, even as in Jesus' life. Look with me in verse 43. As Jesus is enduring this, it says, Then an angel appeared from heaven, strengthening him. So the Father, seeing the duress and the stress that the Son was under, sends this angel to Jesus, this heavenly aid to support and strengthen him in this time. And it says, verse 44, and being in agony, that's a strong word, being in agony, he prayed, Jesus did more earnestly. So the Bible tells us Jesus was literally in agony, in agony over this whole situation, struggling under the crushing weight. And notice how again he overcame. It says, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. That's how he overcame the crushing agonizing experience in his life he persisted in prayer he prayed his way through it receiving the strength to do what was right and obedient verse 44 goes on to tell us and then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground now Luke being a physician remember our gospel writer he's the only one that records this because this no doubt intrigued him that it says Jesus' sweat literally became like great drops of blood under the incredible stress he was under. Now, that is an actual scientific condition that a person can experience on rare and extreme occasions. Hematidrosis, it's actually called, where under extreme severe stress, the capillaries, the small blood vessels, can actually, under extreme stress, the capillaries can actually burst and rupture and the blood mingles with the sweat and actually sweat and blood come out as a result of extreme stress that a person can be under. And this is what's happening to Jesus. Again, indicating to us the incredible weight that he is under at this very hour. Again, what a portrayal of utter faithfulness in our Lord. Staying in there, being committed, amazing what Jesus and his love would faithfully endure and go through for you and I. To stay in there under the weight of the things that he was under in obedience. Verse 45 says, And then when he rose up from prayer, he had come to his disciples and he found them sleeping from sorrow. Take notice of the incredible contrast there. 
Jesus, extremely faithful, the disciples, much like you and I, in their human weakness under stressful times, they succumb to their flesh. In their weakness, because they're overwhelmed with the grief and the stress of the things that are dealing with in their own life, it tells us that they were doing what? They were sleeping when they should have been praying. You kind of notice how not much has changed in generations? <laughs> much like they're sleeping when they should have been praying. And they find themselves in this moment of weakness falling prey to their flesh Instead of seeking God to sustain them, they're, they're kind of snoozing, they're spiritually drowsy on top of being physically drowsy. And verse 46 says that Jesus said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray. Get up and pray, he says. Again, he reminds them, lest you enter into temptation. So Jesus seeks to awaken them out of their drowsy condition. He says, get up. What are you doing sleeping right now he's trying to wake wake up he says and he's trying to arouse the the drowsiness that he sees among them and then notice he reminds them what they ought to be doing he says get up and pray and he reinforces what they should be doing and the reason why pray again why so that you don't enter temptation because temptation was right around the corner and he knew that again jesus was simply looking out for their best interest his call to prayer was because he wanted what was best for the disciples. So he's trying to arouse them to enter into prayer. And I look at this and I think, man, perhaps as the Lord's people, in some ways, let's be honest, we need to wake up from some of our spiritual drowsiness in the body of Christ and recognize the critical hour that we're in as well in these last days as the disciples were in that day. And this reminds me of the words in Romans chapter 13 where it tells us, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Look with me at verse 47. It tells us that while Jesus was still speaking, behold a multitude who was coming after him, it says, and also Judas, one of the twelve, drew near to Jesus about to kiss him and Jesus said this must have been so eerie Judas are you betraying the son of man with a kiss at this moment the betrayal begins to unfold this bitter betrayal the other gospel accounts tell us that Judas, Judas shows up in the garden with literally hundreds of armed individuals to take Jesus into custody and how distorted a picture in Jesus' betrayal, what was intended, a kiss, what was intended to be an expression of affection and love and kindness relationally is now being used in selfish ways as a means to identify Jesus in a spirit of betrayal. You know, I look at this and I can't help but to think how, man, a spirit of betrayal a spirit of betrayal, especially this kind, they were close. There was a deep relationship between Jesus and Judas. If anybody should have been being faithful, there was deep, close bonds. And maybe you've had someone who you were deeply, relationally close to, just bitter betrayal. And you look at this twisted betrayal of Judas here, and it makes me think of how the spirit of betrayal is, quite honestly, to me, one of the most sick forms of our sinful nature. It's just twisted. The bitterness of betrayal of our human sinfulness and how eerie it must have been for Jesus to say, Judas, are you betraying me with a kiss? 
And just the shock that must have come over everyone in that moment realizing what Judas was about to do. Well, verse 49, when those around him saw what was going to happen, they, they realized what was going to take place. Look what they did. They said, Lord, here they are back with the sword again. <laughs> Shall we strike with the sword? And one of them, the other accounts tell us it was Peter. I'm sure you're surprised. Struck the servant of the high priest, Malchus, the accounts tell us, and cut off his right ear. Look at this. At the tense moment, it's now come now, the tense moment where the disciples, what? Were not praying in advance as they should have been praying. They now face their temptation having not prayed in preparation the way that they should. And the temptation comes upon them. And what is the temptation? It's simply this. The temptation is to react hastily in their flesh to try and solve what looks to them like a major threat according to their own human understanding. That's the temptation. To try and react in their flesh to a situation that they find threatening and to try and put their hand in and solve. Hey, this is not going the way it should. And they in their flesh try and react and solve a problem according to their own human understanding and they make a complete mess out of the situation. A complete mess. And this was the temptation they now face and it's the same temptation a lot of times we face. Things happen. And it doesn't go the way we thought it should or it doesn't seem to be. And, and we find ourselves day to day and throughout the week, you know, maybe it's something that takes place in our business life or, or in school with friends or a circumstance or in our family and something happens and from our perception, we think we need to solve or jump in because this looks threatening and it's not the way I want it to be or should be and we react in the flesh and all we do is make a bloody mess a bloody mess where if we had been prepared and prayed up in the temptation we might have responded in the spirit the way that we should have rather than this way they, interesting to me verse 49 they say Lord look, look at this Lord shall we strike with the sword notice they ask but they don't even wait for an answer they just act anyway and we do that too we throw a quick prayer up but then we do what we want anyway <laughs> they ask but they don't even give Jesus a chance to respond they, they ask quickly and then it says without even waiting for an answer Peter strikes the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear man what a lame effort to try and protect God don't worry I'll protect you God as if God somehow needs us to defend him and to protect him in a situation and to make it worse what a poorly successful attempt listen a poorly successful attempt to take matters into your own hands it says Peter cuts off a right ear. Whoa! That'll really threaten a few hundred people with swords and weapons, Peter. I mean, again, don't get the idea here this, that Peter was just a really good swordsman like Zorro, you know, got his right ear. That's not the case. Peter was going for a head blow. But Peter's a fisherman. He don't know how to work a sword. So he pulls out his own little personal machete and thinks, oh, he's going to get angry in the situation. Pulls it out and, he, 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 and he's drowsy because he's been doing what? Sleeping. So he's... And he, and he cuts an ear off. I'm sure they were very impressed. Peter, those efforts of the flesh, right on, buddy. Fantastic. And what a poor attempt to take matters into his own hand. And look, look at Jesus' response, verse 51. Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear... And he healed him. 
Notice again the contrast. Jesus here, an amazing response. Jesus' composure and Jesus' compassion. Jesus is in complete control because Jesus had been spending time seeking the Father. And because Jesus had been spending time seeking the Father, what they were trying to stop and hinder, Jesus realizes it's not to be resisted, it's to be submitted to. This was the will of God. And Jesus therefore says, hey, what you're trying to resist, you need to just permit it and let it happen. This is the plan of God. And permit this, Jesus says. An incredible compassion. And then Jesus says, takes, and he, he touches this guy's ear and he does his, a miracle. The last recorded miracle we have of Jesus besides the resurrection. And what's he doing? His last recorded miracle? He's fixing a mess that his disciples made because they didn't pray and they just responded. Boy, that's a convicting thought. He takes and he puts his ear back on. You know, I always think as I read this story, it would have made a way better Bible story if Peter was awake and got the guy's head. You know, the whole head goes off and has to come back and, instead of his ear. Put his head back on there. That would have been an incredible miracle. But Jesus compassionately heals this guy, touches his ear, settles his disciples. Look, stop. Stop resisting. Permit this, Jesus says. Now, let me say this this morning in relation to that and, and in conclusion. Perhaps recently in your life or currently, maybe right now, maybe you find yourself under some heavy pressure and maybe under pressure and in your own lack of prayer, you've been struggling regarding something happening, maybe even resisting it. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus would say to you lovingly and firmly, you need to permit this. You need to accept it. You need to permit it and allow it to unfold because perhaps what's happening will require change. And maybe it's something that's not what you prefer and maybe it's not what you plan. But maybe Jesus is saying, but this is God's plan. This is the will of God. You know, I want to read you a sentence I jotted in my notes here before we close I wrote this down. There is no more freeing and victorious thing to the human spirit than to come to the place of saying, not my will, but yours be done. Shall we stand and pray together? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it speaks into our lives and reveals to us things that we need to see and to hear about you and about ourselves. And Lord, we ask that by your Spirit, you would just direct us in this time. And that we could be maybe responsive to you, even as we sing a final song, Lord, that your Spirit would prompt us maybe to surrender something or to submit to some area of our life that you're at work in. For we ask for your grace and help to do such in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship the Lord a final song.